You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Synolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Synolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com Dave. Use code Dave. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health/dave for an exclusive 10% off. Today's cool fact of the day is you know that sugar is bad for you because your body stores it as fat and triglycerides and other harmful things when you don't burn it, but did you also know that it can steal your vitamins and minerals? Sugar needs vitamin B, calcium, and magnesium to be digested, so it steals them from your body's stores if it needs to, which leads to a whole host of other problems. All right, I'm super excited about today's show because... Today's guest is a board-certified neurologist and fellow of the American College of Nutrition. He's an associate professor at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. He's written books that have been published in 27 languages and tons and tons of peer-reviewed stuff in the Archives of Neurology and Neurosurgery and the Journal of Applied Nutrition. And he's lectured at the Scripps Institute, New York University, Harvard. He's been on 2020, Larry King, CNN. Basically, he's one of the major brain hackers, and if you follow the things I write about, you've probably come across his work because it's so well-known, well-respected, and I've referenced it in some of mine. I'm talking about none other than Dr. David Perlmutter. Welcome to the show, Dr. Perlmutter. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. The books that people have probably heard about that you wrote are Grain Brain 
and uh, your new book, Brain Maker, that just came out, which is all about the power of gut microbes to heal and protect your brain. Uh, why are you so focused on the gut, even though you're kind of a brain doctor? <laughs> I, you can be sure I've been asked that question many times <laughs> in the past. And, you know, we were taught as neurologists to really spend time looking at the brain because that's where the answer should be. And, you know, frankly, uh, as a neurologist, in fact, you know, from my first 10 years out in practice, I was pretty much mainstream. I pretty well towed the line. I didn't stand out, which was a good thing, I guess, for my partners. But we were practicing under the doctrine of uh, diagnose and adios, meaning yeah. we did what we could to make a diagnosis, came up with a fancy name for things. But thereafter, uh, we didn't really have much to offer our patients. And I would say to this day, that's pretty much still the standard that you know, we'll tell a person what they've got, but in terms of what we've got in our bag of tricks to help people, it's very little. So I began looking, oddly enough, outside of the brain for answers, recognizing, you know, what many of us have been schooled in for so long, and that is a more holistic approach, looking at the body as a whole, as opposed to being a compilation of segregated parts and systems. So we begin to recognize that, in fact, the gut has powerful influence over things brain-related, uh, in terms of its moment-to-moment -moment function, in terms of its health, and even in terms of the brain's long-term risk for degeneration and disease. And, uh, you know, what I discovered in looking at the literature is that really top-notch researchers around the world have been publishing this stuff for a long time and it's been swept under the carpet because I think neurologists don't want to recognize that you know, our domain is influenced by the gastroenterologist domain and, and clearly vice versa. So that information has been out there, but uh, clearly in recent years, the amount of information relating the gut to the brain and vice versa has absolutely exploded. And when we get to the part where we talk about the actual bacteria living within the gut, what we call the human microbiome, uh, it's really important to understand that 90% of all the literature in peer-reviewed journals dealing with the human microbiome has only been published in the past five years, you really begin to recognize that this is brand new information and we are just babes in the woods when it comes to uh, understanding what's going on here and beyond that, understanding what this portends in terms of what we're gonna be able to do to help people with brain disorders by focusing on things related to the gut. That is such a powerful statistic. 90% of our knowledge is out in the last five years. And coincidentally, I started the Bulletproof blog about, about five years ago and was, was just terribly interested in the microbiome because in the years before that, I, I've taken somewhere around $50,000 worth of probiotics. I've tried pig whipworm eggs in an effort to heal my own gut, which works amazingly well today. And I'm sure some of those probiotics worked. I'm also sure many of them didn't. But the profound changes that you experience cognitively when you do things that have a very noticeable effect on the gut uh, is uh, it, it, it was personally almost unbelievable. Uh, well, let me, let me just take a moment, uh, and you just mentioned something, and I think your viewers should, should take a step back and replay the part where you just said, I took some whipworm eggs uh, <laughs> for whatever reason you did that. And, you know, the notion that you inoculated your body with worms uh, or parasites or other bacteria is, you know, is really going to fly in the face of what many, yeah. 
you know, the paradigm that really underlies modern medicine. And, and what I mean by that is we really still cling to this notion that germs are bad, that parasites and worms are terrible things, and that, uh, you know, we want to be as sterile as we can. And it turns out that is wrong. Uh, there is what we call the hygiene hypothesis that was uh, described back in 1986 that really talks about the fact that our obsession with hygiene, our cleanliness, our sterilization of our gut with antibiotics and anti-helminth uh, medications, etc., is really not a good thing. I mean, uh, I'm not saying that all bugs are good. I'm not saying that bacteria can't be threatening to health. Of course they can be. But what is now becoming very clear is that the more we traumatize our gut bacteria, the more we put at risk the balance, for example, of our immune systems. Uh, your use of whipworm eggs is uh, not out of the blue. It's not capricious. Uh, researchers around the world have looked at that technique to balance the immune system using whipworm eggs in other uh, autoimmune and inflammatory conditions, be they uh, things like lupus or joint-related disorders, and an attempt to increase the diversity of the organisms living within the gut. There was a really interesting study that came out three years ago from Oxford that compared gut bacterial diversity in the presence or absence of parasites in a particular country with the rates of Alzheimer's disease in that country. And what they found was really very interesting. Those countries that had the least diversity in the number of different organisms in the gut and the least number of parasites had dramatically higher rates of Alzheimer's. Think about that. So wow. we've got to welcome back to the table and uh, to the gut uh, good bacteria, uh, some bacteria that may are, are be challenging, and even parasites and worms. What a crazy concept. But, you know, when we see people doing fecal transplants, actually taking the fecal material from healthy individuals and transplanting that into people with various types of diseases, I'm sure we'll talk about that, oh, yeah. and seeing positive response, it begins to reframe, uh, in the broad sense, our understanding of bacteria in general. You know, we physicians have been schooled that uh, bacteria are the enemy, uh, the germ theory is alive and well, and that all bugs are bad. You know, you think back to the 14th century when the bubonic plague killed out, killed off a third of Europe. So bugs are bad, we've got to kill every bug, we've got to use antibiotics for every cold or sniffle, and we have to have hand sanitizers on the end caps of every aisle <laughs> of the grocery store because bugs are bad. That is wrong, and I think that we're now understanding that we've lived in this beautiful, symbiotic, self-supportive, mutualistic uh, relationship with the organisms living within us for millions and millions of years, and it's just now that we are threatening that relationship, and we're seeing the health consequences uh, that are resulting from that. What intrigued me about this idea of, of using a, a parasitic worm that, that can only live for a little while in the human, that's why I took pig ones, not human ones, but it is actually science fiction. I, I'm a computer hacker by background, so I, I read that sort of thing. And, and you imagine if you were to build this giant spaceship, you would want to have super tiny little robots that did maintenance tasks that you couldn't see. But there are times when you want to do like slightly bigger maintenance tasks that you can't do with a tiny little invisible thing. So you might want slightly larger ones. And it turns out if you were to evolve a complex system that was self-maintaining, you might want to have some helpers. And it looks like we have some of those helpers and we also have some things that honestly don't help us. 
uh, things like Giardia and Clostridium difficile and other diseases that are that are generally harmful. And who knows, maybe Giardia has a, a beneficial purpose. Yes, let me take yeah. exception to you, if I may. Sure, please do. And 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 I think that we need to take uh, a, we need to reframe this notion of bad versus good bacteria. Okay. Uh, I mean, you mentioned Clostridium difficile as an organism, and you know, and you you would conceive of likely that being uh, in the category of bad bacteria, but it's not in and of itself. That's uh, a bit of a myopic uh, uh, look at things because we have to contextualize our understanding of bacteria. There's a very good chance that you've got plenty of Clostridium difficile floating yeah. around your body right now, as do I. In fact, now that we understand more about C. diff, I'm kind of hopeful that I do. Now, that sounds <laughs> as, almost as crazy as inoculating yourself with whipworm eggs, but let me explain. Yeah, okay. um, we find C. diff uh, significantly represented in the infant uh, gut microbiome. Uh, we see it in elderly individuals in nursing homes. So it's really the context that we look upon C. diff. We understand, for example, that there's a balance in the gut bacteria and that when we upset that balance, we can cause a specific species that might not have otherwise been problematic to then rear its ugly head and cause issues. Uh, and that is the case with C. diff. Clostridium difficile diarrhea affects about half a million Americans each year and is yeah. the cause of about 30,000 deaths uh, in America annually. And that is a situation where there is imbalance. When we introduce an antibiotic and we suddenly challenge the checks and balances that keeps various species in their proper ratios, uh, we don't know if there could be an upside to Giardia. I would bet that there would be. Face mm -hmm. it, humans have been exposed to Giardia as long as we've been drinking water out of streams and we've survived. So I think we're going to have to look at H. pylori, which was looked upon as the bacterial that causes the bacteria that causes gastric ulcers. Well, we now see a very positive upside to H. pylori, which uh, was wonderfully described uh, in the book *Missing Microbes*. So we're, we're understanding that uh, we have to look at both sides of the coin. Some species that may, in fact, be looked upon as being favorable in certain contexts may actually be. Uh, unfavorable. There are certain groups of Clostridia uh, that actually have some very powerful anti-inflammatory activity in the human gut. So uh, we don't understand all this stuff. And further, we don't understand yet fully uh, what is the relationship between certain bacterial species as they relate to each of us in terms of our individuality based upon our genome that we inherited from our ancestors. What is the interplay between our gut microbiome and our human genome? Well, we now understand that gut bacteria influence the expression of our 23,000 yeah. genes, that there are powerful what we call epigenetic effects, that the gut bacteria are changing the expression of the genes that have been handed down from our parents and grandparents and our ancestors. And from a purely numeric perspective, 99% of the DNA within our bodies is bacterial. We are mostly represented from a genetic perspective by the bacterial uh, DNA. So again, we're in a very nascent period in our understanding. And um, the sheer amount of data that's being yeah. generated with reference to these numbers is, is confounding and breathtaking. You know, in um, just one gram of fecal material, that's one-fifth uh, one of a teaspoon, there are a hundred uh, terabytes of information. 
So uh, that's a lot of information when you think about how many how much information you're storing on your laptop or your or your home computer. Maybe you've got a terabyte uh, if you've got a new computer, but we're talking about 100 million stored in one gram of fecal material. So that's you know information that requires uh, you know the most powerful computing uh, abilities uh, on the planet to really go through, not just from a genetic perspective, but from a metabolomic perspective. What does that mean? It means looking at the metabolic outflow from the human microbiome. And we're just beginning to understand that. And in looking at how these bacteria regulate our gene expression, we're just beginning to understand that. And, you know, uh, you and I were talking before we began the recording uh, about a trip that I recently took to University of California, San Diego, meeting with arguably one of the world's experts uh, in supercomputers and the apl application of this technology to huge amounts of data. And that's uh, Professor Larry Smarr at UCSD who's using his knowledge and the supercomputing uh, technology available to him at UCSD to begin to analyze this data, not only in terms of how does it relate to being healthy, but moving forward, what are the types of bacteria, the ratios of bacteria, what are their metabolic uh, products that relate to disease with the hope of introducing changes into the gut bacteria uh, to finally realize uh, the ability to turn some diseases around that have been so hugely challenging uh, to us in the medical field. That's why I went there because again, as you mentioned at the introduction, I'm a neurologist and we are amongst the most frustrated uh, healthcare <laughs> practitioners in, in having so little uh, in the toolkit to offer patients. So uh, that's really why I went out there and it's a very, very exciting beginning. Larry Smart is a, a fascinating guy because he uh, he's also a computer science guy. My background is computer science, high tech. Uh, in fact, the first human genome, a lot of it was stored at a company called Double Twist. It was a whole floor of a data center. I, I did some architecture work with, with that company just for one person's, you know, Craig Venter's genome in order to get all that stuff. And we look at what we're dealing with now, and especially what Larry's doing as a computer scientist, supercomputer guy, um, we're looking at this thing called the exposome, which is the sum set of environmental data that we're exposed to. And that's the biggest set of data of all, because it's what magnetic fields, what temperature, what light spectrums, what did you eat, what did you breathe, what chemicals were there, how many parts per billion, it's almost infinite. We're looking at that, and then that has an influence on you epigenetically, on your genes, and it has an influence on the bacteria and fungus and viruses and everything else that are in your gut and the rest of your tissues, and then they have another effect on you. So it's it's these concentric rings of data, and as a, as a, a you know, computer hacker kind of thinker, I've always been tasked with how do you manage or how do you control a system when you don't have enough data? If you had a life-size map of the country, it would be useless because it's life-size. You'd have to go everywhere, and we're dealing with that on a data perspective. So when you take a guy like, like Larry, who has way more supercomputer knowledge than I ever did, and you take a burning need, he was having his own gut problems and said, all right, I'm going to hack this. Uh, I've had a chance to have dinner with Larry and, and talk about this, and it's, it's fascinating because he did, I think, a year of computer cycle time to crunch all the data that came from his own medical tests to see what was going on in his gut. And he's been one of the pioneers in the field. So I'm, I was incredibly impressed when we were just chatting to hear that you're hanging out with him because it's that cross-pollination of crazy computer science guys 
with leading thinking neurologists and gastroenterologists, as well as some of these other uh, even more unusual things like acupuncturists, where <laughs> suddenly we're seeing these weird things that don't really shouldn't be possible unless there's something going on we haven't done. But to hack all that stuff, you go to the exposome where we, we barely even measure it, much less know what to do. That's true. And, you know, I, I would say, though, to take a step back, and uh, it, it's great that we have these conversations and that people are doing that kind of work. But I think more importantly, uh, more important is the discussion uh, that once we recognize that our microbiome is having such a profound role to play in terms of dictating our destiny as it relates to health, which is very humbling. I mean, we'd like to think, oh, you know, you've got high blood pressure, you should take this drug because we're so smart, and you've got high blood sugar, take some metformin, we'll lower your blood sugar, everything's going to be rosy. It isn't that simple. Uh, that is um, a, an extremely myopic and outdated approach. So looking at environmental issues, etc., cetera, uh, not just their direct effects on our physiology, but their effects on our genome, we call that epigenetics, and their effects like diet on the microbiome, the bacteria living within us, another set of data, a massive set of data, all interesting. But I think uh, what I wanna do and what I've been doing and what my last book, Brain Maker, is all about is, okay, we understand that this uh, data is almost incomprehensible. But that said, what we do know is that we've lived in a beautiful relationship with our gut bacteria and other organisms for a couple of million years, depending on when you feel that uh, hominids e evolved or became present. Uh, but that said, we recognize that there are lots of things that we are doing right now that are profoundly threatening to the human microbiome and have downstream effects that are measurable, that are quantifiable, and are published. When we see, for example, dramatic increase in autism uh, in Western cultures right now, and when we see the relationship, for example, of being born by cesarean section and doubling the risk for autism, uh, tripling the risk for ADHD, dramatically increasing the risk of type 1 diabetes, celiac disease, and even becoming obese as an adult, we recognize that things that threaten the microbiome and being born by C-section, in other words, a baby that doesn't acquire the right microbiome because he or she doesn't pass through the birth canal, this has lifelong effects on that individual. So this is information that is um, actionable and is something we can do right now. And that is number one, if you have a choice, you should elect to deliver your children naturally, not C-section. Right now in America, one third of all births happen through C-section. It's, it's hard for me to get my arms around the notion that a third of all births in America require C-section because they're complicated. That's that's nonsense. I mean, some Scandinavian countries have dramatically lower rates of C-section. Understand the discussion needs to be far greater than how long is my scar going to be and how long will I be in the hospital. The discussion needs to be, you know, there's new data coming out that shows a profound increased risk of medical issues with my newborn child down the road if he or she is born by C-section. And not to be pointing fingers, but that is data that likely the obstetrician may not be aware of. And, you know, my mission here is to educate people, yeah. learn this information, then present it to the obstetrician, and they should know that. Then, how else do we challenge our microbiome? We are abusing antibiotics in North America, left, right, and center. And it is breathtaking to consider the fact that 
you know, about uh, two-thirds of Americans will take an antibiotic every year, and that it is the most common prescription for children under the age of 10. So we're bombarding our microbiome with these broad-spectrum uh, bombs that are wiping everything out, and there is hell to pay. The changes that occur in the human microbiome after antibiotic exposure have now recently been described as being permanent. So when we have a cough or a sniffle or a sore throat, our, our response should be not to run to the walk-in clinic because uh, I've got a big presentation next week and I can't be sick. The response should be, look, it's going to take seven days to get over your cold if you don't do anything. But if you take an antibiotic, it's only going to take a full week. We should understand there's no difference in terms of getting through the cold, but there is a huge difference in terms of what you're doing to yourself. We've got to understand that food makes a huge uh, uh, event uh, with reference to the microbiome, that uh, sugars that are so prominent in the Western diet, high levels of carbohydrates, and the deprivation of fat yeah. uh, really change the microbiome for the worse. Uh, the, the loss of fiber in the Western diet is a huge event, not just because fiber is bulk to help you have a bowel movement, but because fiber and specifically prebiotic fiber nurtures the good gut bacteria. So, you know, we were having a great conversation, you and I, a while ago about the future and looking at data and how we can ultimately morph that data, utilize that data to develop interventional strategies to help people. But right now, my message is, look, stop threatening your microbiome, change your diet, cut down the antibiotics, recognize that non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen threaten the microbiome, that these acid-blocking drugs that are advertised yeah. on the evening news because you can't tolerate eating a sausage sandwich, <laughs> uh, they've got a guy, he's eating a sausage sandwich and the sandwich turns away from him. The sandwich is giving you information saying, don't eat me, but if you take <laughs> this acid-blocking drug, everything's going to be great. Well, guess what? It's not risk-free. That acid-blocking drug has profound effects in terms of changing your microbiome which increases your risk for immune challenges and even inflammation. Why am I fixated on inflammation? I am fixated on inflammation as a mechanistic process because it's the cornerstone of Alzheimer's, autism, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, coronary artery disease, diabetes, and even cancer. So at the end of the day, really at the beginning of the day, when uh, we are told to mix uh, coconut oil in our coffee. What a preposterous idea that is. We're doing so because we're welcoming back to the body something that has been yeah. desperately needed uh, at least for the past four decades, and that is fat. Humans have been eating fat for hundreds of thousands of years, and it's allowed us to survive to have this conversation right now. And this bogus notion that we should avoid fat and we should avoid saturated fat finally has been appended, and that's our mission. Our mission is to bring peer-reviewed science to the public attention saying that, yeah, we need to get fat back on the table, but it's the sugar and the carbs that have got to go. It, it's such an important message, and it, it's, it's so cool that you're looking at, at epigenetics and birth. My, my first book was about exactly that. It was, what, what can you do to have healthier kids? My wife, by the way, is a Scandinavian physician and was just horrified when she came to the U.S. and, and just the, the, the volume 
of these surgeries for people to have their, their kids was, was amazing. So we put together all this research. We turned off her polycystic ovary syndrome and ended up focusing on, well, we don't know that much about epigenetics, but given what we know, what are the best likely decisions we can make because we have to act now. And I had a chance at, uh, at a recent event to chat with Craig Venter and I asked him a question on stage, like, like you have all the data, like more data than any human on earth. And there's millions of people who are listening to Bulletproof Radio. What do I tell them to do now with the data you have? And because he, he keeps talking, in five years we're going to have this, and you know, ten years we'll know this. And I said, or should we just have pizza and beer and just kind of keep hanging out? And his answer, which was was a good answer on stage, it was kind of a pointed question, was, well, well, let's sit down over pizza and beer and talk about it. Uh, and afterwards, he said, look, I don't want to publicly make any recommendations there until I have all of the data. But you're going out there, Dr. Perlmutter, <laughs> and you're making your best recommendation given the data we have today. You bet. What's the difference between what you're doing and what Craig and some of the other researchers, the, the so-called um, evidence-based, which means they, they only look at one of seven kinds of evidence that we know of. But um, what do we, what, what's driving you to do what you're doing versus uh, these other approaches, which are until we know everything, we, we don't know anything? Uh, here's the answer, and it's really very simple. Um, I'm confronted every single day by patients and their families who need an answer now. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be here in five years and ten yes. years when data is crunched and double-blinded trials have been uh, undertaken and finally some journal agrees to publish an article. <laughs> I'm dealing with patients with ALS yes. who've been given five months. I'm dealing with Alzheimer's patients and my own father who have a limited time. So uh, my patients recognize that I'm giving it my best shot, that I've yeah. done my homework, and this is the best that I can come up with. It's why I wrote Grain Brain. It's mm -hmm. why I wrote Brain Maker, because we don't have uh, time to waste. And we know, as best we can, I could be completely wrong, but we know, I know, I believe rather, that, uh, that sugar is toxic to the brain, that there yeah. is risk to gut permeability, uh, with reference to consuming foods that have gluten. I know that antibiotics threaten the microbiome. I know that the microbiome plays a pivotal role in regulating the permeability or leakiness of the gut, and that markers of gut leakiness, called LPS, or lipopolysaccharide, yes. are dramatically elevated in the very diseases that, you just, uh, that we just talked about. We see high levels of this LPS, a marker of inflammation and gut leakiness, in Alzheimer's autism, major depression, and even Lou Gehrig's disease, or ALS. I cannot turn my back on that information. What is it saying to me? It's saying that here you are, Dr. Perlmutter, we're showing you that ALS is a disease that is characterized by inflammation, we've known that, and that here is at least a marker that shows this inflammation may have its genesis in the gut. When I am face-to-face -face with a patient who has 10 months to live, that's what they were told by their doctor at a famous clinic, and the family sitting in my examining room, and they're asking me, well, what can we do? We know there's no cure, there's no pharmaceutical. What do you think? That's what I tell them. I don't have all the answers, but I say, look, here's the data. We've got to do everything we can right now. I'm going to yes. give it the best shot. And we, we go for it. You know, you've got to do more than pour a bucket of cold water on your head and say, here, let's <laughs> collect some money for research that's going to look at the brain. We've got to stop focusing on the brain and get away from this reductionist mentality that brain disorders are only in the brain. I think they're coming from the gut.
and, and other areas of the body. So what motivates me that's different from what motivates Craig Venter and researchers is that I'm willing to take that step and, and develop a relationship with patients one-on-one -on -one, uh, where they trust me to do my very, very best and I make no promises that there will be results. I only make the promise that every night before I go to sleep, I'm going to read every journal that just came out that's relevant to this issue and do my very best to stay on top of this liter literature that I will take deep breaths when people criticize me and they do every single day and that's oh, yeah. totally fine because if they didn't criticize me, I wouldn't be out there. Mm -hmm. You know, people say, well, Perlmutter, you're really outside of the box. Is that your goal? And I say, no, at the end of the day, the goal is to make the box bigger yep. so that other people are going to say, hey, you know, microbiome, maybe you've got something there. And so people like Craig Venter, uh, what has he morphed his work into? He's looking at the microbiome now. God yeah, bless him. I know. And he, the president of the Craig Venter Institute is one of our keynote speakers at an international symposium that I'm chairing uh, next month. Uh, she's going to come and talk about what they're doing at the Craig Venter Institute. So I, I genuflect to a, a guy yes. like Craig Venter. I, 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 um, listened to his, his book about his discovery uh, on tape as I was driving to a, a place to give a lecture, and um, it, was, it just took my breath away. You know, his whole story, yeah. the time he spent uh, you know, trying to, to, to get even a degree, you know, he was in some island surfing and had a bad experience, and my kind of guy. And I've never met him, and I, I'm certainly looking forward to it, but I think the difference is, um, you know, I've lost a lot of patients along the way, and um, and I don't take that lightly. I take that as a challenge to me to do more and to work harder. My own father passed away a couple of months ago from Alzheimer's. What cruel irony is that? Yeah. Well, I was asked about that that whole situation this morning at breakfast at a health food store. Wow. And uh, the woman uh, who said that, um, you know, um, in 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 her world. The Bible challenges us uh, to continue the work lifelong. And uh, I think that, you know, as I said to her, I, I practice under the notion of what is called noblesse oblige, meaning uh, it, it's a, an antiquated term, meaning the nobility have an obligation. I'm not certainly not calling myself nobility, but uh, as I said to her, I, I've been gifted, I think, with um, a, a, you know, a modicum of intelligence. I have a little intelligence and I have a lot of curiosity. And I think curiosity is one of the things that defines human beings. I think the opposable thumb is really cool. I'm glad I have one of those, <laughs> two of those, basically, so you get to hold things. Uh, but we have curiosity. We have the ability to question things, and that has allowed us to move forward. There is a great uh, quote that I first read on the office of a friend of mine, Dr. Amar Bose, uh, whose uh, headphones you probably have, Bose Audio. In fact, invited, these would be his headphones right there here. There you go. Isn't that that's incredible? <laughs> and uh, the quote is from Maurice Maeterlinck, a, a Belgian Nobel laureate, and it goes like this: At every crossway on the road that leads to the future, each progressive spirit is opposed by a thousand men appointed to defend the past. So, yeah. for me, I, I am clearly challenging the status quo. Uh, and that's how you move the ball down the field, because if you just accept the status quo, we won't make progress. Will I be wrong moving forward? Uh, probably. And yeah. in fact, I can almost assure you I will be wrong. Uh, Thomas Edison said that he learned more from his 99 mistakes 
than from the one time he really perfected the light bulb. So uh, I'm going to be wrong moving forward. Years ago uh, in my writings, I talked about the utility of a low-fat diet and avoiding yeah. saturated fats. I was wrong. And um, that's okay. That's how we learn. We learn from our mistakes, and we want to stay current with the literature. So, uh, Dave, I'm not sure uh, what was your, what question you asked me that got me going here, but, but it was, so it, it, was a, it was an amazing <laughs> answer, and it, it was what sort of compare and contrast what you're doing with what luminaries like like Craig Venter are doing. That's and right. I, I was lucky. It was Peter Diamandis, who's another one of those guys who's, who's really changing the world, author of Abundance and Bold and SpaceX and and, and guys like that. And I was fortunate to meet Craig through there. And with with hardcore research like that, you get this, I want to understand and I want to know every little mechanism of action before I'm going to do it. Like, I won't do it if I don't at least believe that I understand everything. And the whole history of science, we believe we understood everything, but we probably didn't. We just had increasingly better models. And uh, we probably still don't understand lots of things that we think we understand about physics. <laughs> but... Uh, well, when, let me take an anthropological, yeah. uh, uh, anthropological perspective, and, uh, and um, that might be a little surprising for a clinician and researcher, but, you know, we've got to learn from history, and we now have, you know, some incredible evidence of what our ancestors' microbiomes look like, uh, and we've been able to look at that through a couple of technology. One is fossilized fecal material, while distasteful. Uh, we are really able to look at the genetic signatures of what our ancestors' microbiomes looked like. And more recent work, uh, looking at dental plaque from fossilized uh, human teeth, uh, that really uh, wonderfully recapitulates the, the genetic signatures of what the oral microbiome looked like in our ancestors. You know, uh, by, uh, plaque in the teeth that you and I have even ongoing right now is basically fossilized uh, biofilm, the, the mm -hmm. products of bacteria. So what we're seeing is that you can chronologically uh, evaluate the oral microbiome of humans even up until the time of 10,000 years ago when we first uh, began with agriculture and had this huge abundance of high-carbohydrate, non-spoiling uh, food available to us with the cultivation of wheat and other grains. And even more recently, with a sudden explosion in the early 19th century of sugar uh, as a, dare I call it a food, I, I, I really shouldn't, but, and, and looking at the, the changes in uh, various mouth-related bacteria that relate to caries and relate to gingivitis suddenly exploding. So we see you know, dramatic changes in the oral microbiome that correlate very nicely with the foods that we've eaten uh, over thousands and thousands of years. And you know, I was getting ready, I am getting ready to give a talk in a couple of weeks at a, a, a meeting in, uh, here in Florida, um, integrative medicine uh, microbiome meeting. And I was just thinking as I was going through those slides that isn't it interesting that we have data that strongly relates gingivitis, poor, uh, poor health of the gingiva and the teeth, um, to Alzheimer's and to coronary artery disease. And now we have this data that shows that there's been the explosion of the organisms that relate to gingivitis that clearly are tied in chronologically to our exposure to changes in the diet and specifically uh, sugar. So it all comes together. And, and we again, looking back, what did we do in the past that cultivated a great relationship with our microbiome? 
if we don't have all of the, the data right now, and we don't, nor could we ever think we could analyze that data, let's at least take a step back and, you know, not to be totally supportive of the paleo movement, but that's what that's all about. Yeah. The paleo movement is, is uh, founded on the premise that, look, we ate a certain way for two million years, it allowed us to survive, maybe there's merit in that. And I am totally supportive yeah. of, of at least conceptually uh, that notion. So, uh, but I think we should look at paleo diets, not only from the macronutrient perspective of fat, carbohydrate, and protein, uh, but the micronutrient perspective as well, and other areas of diet like fiber. But we should also look at the paleo recommendations, the paleo diet and lifestyle, as re- uh, through the lens of the microbiome. Yeah. What did a diet uh, that would give uh, humans you know, over 100 to 120 grams of fiber each day, compared to five grams each day these days here in America, what did this massive amount of fiber do to the human that was possible uh, through the lens of the microbiome? And I think that we're eating uh, so little fiber today, and it's it's just one of those factors. So again, let me get back to your question. Um, I will in no way uh, be derogatory as it relates to the researchers who are looking in, in, yeah. at this data. Uh, but this is a very nascent uh, area, and I am certain that the Larry Smars of the world, the Craig Venters of the world, are in awe of uh, and with humility yes. uh, in looking at what we thought were going to give us all the answers by sequencing uh, the human uh, uh, genome, which Dr. Venter did, but now recognizing that uh, there is a hundredfold more data in the the microbiome's genome. And the microbiome itself, you know, being such a huge repository of data. So um, these guys are at it. And as I mentioned, you know, that's a, a huge part of Dr. Venter's interest now. So, you know, these are people who move with the time and are willing to uh, to accept these challenges. And it's it's vital. And I think there may be some core personality types involved in this, but, but core research uh, where saying, okay, I must know every single uh, you know, every single mechanism of action, every single data point that's that's knowable using the technology we have that keeps getting better. This is where we we discover new things. There's a, a cutting edge or a bleeding edge, which is well, given what we've got, and given that I'm going to die or life is going to suck so much <laughs> that I'm not waiting. So I'm going to take the sum of what I, I can digest from that, and I'm going to say I'm I'm going to go in a direction. Uh, and, yeah. and it's probably the right direction. And I may have to adjust the heading from north to you know two degrees of north, but at least I'm moving because I'm going to die. That, that was what motivated me when I was 26. I didn't. They actually told me I was at very high risk of stroke and heart attack at 29. But having my brain stop working in my mid-20s when, when I hit almost 300 pounds, despite doing what was supposed to work, that low-fat nonsense, um, that was my big motivator to say, well, I, you know, I'll hack the problem. I don't have to know everything about a system to take control of it. I just need to know enough and we'll fill in the gaps. But if you just do that, you're, you're flying blind. And if you only wait for the research, you know, death might catch you before the research gets there. So there's a need for both of these, these core research, these amazing foundational science things, along with people who are saying, well, you know, I'm going to move along the edges. And I, I just want to say thanks to you for being willing to go out there and say, <laughs> You know, given the sum of the evidence you have today, this is what I would do in that condition. It might not be right, but it's better than eating Cheetos, right? <laughs> well, uh, 
you know, uh, one of the criticisms that I have gotten in the past has been, well, you know, Perlmutter, you're not practicing evidence-based medicine. And what that means is <laughs> what I'm doing hasn't been validated in peer-reviewed studies uh, in a double-blinded way using thousands of individuals so that somebody can develop a proprietary drug that I would then yeah. prescribe. That's what evidence-based medicine uh, is all about. And uh, in this lifetime, I choose to look at the evidence uh, of what happens to my patients. You know, when I see a child who couldn't speak or socially interact and sat in the corner spinning circles and would scream, uh, suddenly get, have a videotape sent to me from his mother of this child practicing a book report about Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> and that's a true story. Yes, uh, yes. Because he underwent a fecal transplantation and he has autism. You know, that's, uh, there's not a double-blinded trial, although interestingly enough, that is actually going on right now at the University of Arizona doing fecal transplant study on kids with autism. But the reason that child underwent fecal transplantation to reestablish a healthy microbiome is because of the numerous scientific publications demonstrating that kids with autism have a disturbed microbiome mm -hmm. because of the fabulous research by Dr. Derek McFabe at the University of Western Ontario showing that the, the, the bacterial changes in the, in the gut that are correlated with autism induce changes in the levels of what are called the short-chain fatty acids, mm -hmm. higher levels of one short-chain fatty acid called pro propionic acid yep. that directly damages brain function. He's actually injected rodents with propionic acid, and what do they do? They go into a corner and they spin around in circles and they don't sniff each other, they don't socialize. And, and I have that on my website, it's on YouTube for crying out loud. He is gonna present his data at our upcoming uh, microbiome conference. So when a, when a parent brings me their autistic child and their family has been devastated by it, they don't know what the future holds, they know pretty well that that child is going to grow up into an adult who requires full-time assistance and they say, you know, Dr. Perlmutter, we know there's no pill, but what's your best guess? And I don't guess based upon yeah. hunches. I'm guessing based upon this information that we have at hand that researchers are looking at around the world that I try to write books about and I try to lecture about. And I say, you know what, here's what we ought to do. We ought to change the diet X, Y, and Z. We ought to consider aggressive probiotics. We might even consider probiotic enemas. What a crazy idea, putting probiotics in the colon of a kid with autism. Why in the world would you do that? When that question is asked, I give an hour lecture, I show slides, I give people the peer review literature that documents the research going on that is supportive of these wacky ideas. And, and again, you know, when people say, gee, this is stepping out and why, do you, why don't you just toe the line? I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna do Good. it. I'm not gonna look parents in the eye and say, look, at this point in time, we really don't have a medication for your child and that's about as much time as I have. See you later. That just isn't gonna work for me. You know, it's gonna, if it takes an hour to explain it, fine. If it takes me spending, you know, eight months to a year to write a book about it and then handing them the book, that's what I'll do. If it takes videos, whatever is the medium, understand the word doctor doesn't mean healer, it means teacher. And that is the challenge. It's to yeah. learn as much as you can, push the limits, challenge the status quo. Ronald Reagan said that the word status quo, the word status quo, it's a Latin term for the mess we're in. So we're in a big mess with you know, uh, autism uh, increasing 
uh, seven to eight fold in just the past 15 years. That's, that's an epidemic. Autism is an epidemic. Alzheimer's is epidemic. When you recognize that your chances of being diagnosed with Alzheimer's is 50-50 if you live to be age 85, that is an epidemic. It's unspoken. It is the third leading cause of death in America. It affects, uh, you know, 5.4 million Americans, uh, you know, are diagnosed with that disease in this country right now. And in Canada, you know, five or 600,000. And there is no pharmaceutical cure for that problem. And yet we know it's preventable. So, you know, uh, yeah. that's where the outliers get their message across. And that's where, you know, we're grateful for people like yourself uh, for having these venues, for creating these forums that allow us to, to get this word out. Well, one of the, the important things, and thank you for that, by the way, um, one of the things that, that really made a difference to me is I come from a family of engineers and scientists, uh, evidence-based people. And when you study actual evidence in, in the history of debate in the Greeks, there's actually uh, seven different kinds or eight different kinds of, uh, of ways of having evidence. And to this day, there is actually no double-blind study that jumping out of an airplane will kill you. And I would invite the evidence-based people to, to go ahead and do that, you know, to figure it out. Because if you say evidence-based and you only count one of the seven kinds, <laughs> what, you're, what you're doing is, is you're subtly insulting everyone else who said, well, here's the evidence. When I, when I smack myself in the face, it hurts. That's evidence. It just is. There is not a double-blinded study that says that that hurts, but it is evidence. It's so true. we can just reject evidence-based people as closed-minded and unwilling to consider most forms of evidence because it doesn't fit whatever dogma they believe. Those are religious people hiding as scientists. Yeah. We're wedded to this uh, notion of a double-blind placebo-controlled trial mm -hmm. where one group gets it and one group doesn't. And uh, there's never been, could, or could there ever be, a double-blind trial that shows that uh, that compared wearing your seatbelt versus people who don't wear their seatbelt, <laughs> lives and who dies in a car accident. And yet, we accept the notion of uh, when things seem related uh, in, in some way, that there may be some, uh, just because there's a correlation, that there may be some causality. Uh, we correlate lower risk of injury by wearing your seatbelt, and so maybe there's some causality there. I mean, uh, one study that came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association back in 2004 uh, showed a dramatic increased risk of breast cancer related to the number of times women took antibiotics. Now, that's a correlation study. Mm -hmm. That was not a causality study. It doesn't mean the antibiotics caused the, the breast cancer, but it sure as heck should get you thinking that the the antibiotics might be related in some way, that there may be some connection, perhaps now through the lens of the microbiome, I strongly believe that, that then challenges the immune system and allows cancer to flourish. So, so your point is certainly well taken. Um, I would say that we remain wedded to this notion of double-blind trial, and I would reject that notion, uh, for example, in dealing uh, with a patient with Lou Gehrig's disease, or ALS. Uh, you know, people would say, well, you put your patients with ALS on a ketogenic diet, and yet uh, there's no double-blinded trial. Well, I'm not going to do that to a patient uh, who's got a year to live and randomize my patients half get what I think is going to work and the other half don't. That's not going to work with, with me. Um, when we know that the animal studies 
are, are strongly supportive of a ketogenic diet in the treatment of ALS. It sounds like evidence to me. <laughs> it's plenty of evidence. And yeah. uh, we know that the ketogenic diet doesn't have a downside. Uh, why wouldn't I do that? So, um, you know, people say, well, you should have your patients randomized. I, I generally refuse to do that when best case, best guess is that what I'm going to do may help them and there's no downside and they're on a limited, uh, a limited time schedule here. So, so let's shift gears a bit because uh, the reason I actually I invited you to be on the show was to talk more about BrainMaker, oh, your latest point. book. Okay. Okay. And, 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 uh, you know, geez, I'm, I'm sorry. It's, it's just like, like you're, you're working on so many fun things. A lot of what I've done is around cognitive function personally, and I know a lot of listeners uh, enjoyed the stuff we were just talking about, um, but they're also pretty eager to hear about the, the leaky brain concept that you talk about in, uh, in BrainMaker. Can, can you just kind of expound on that? What is a leaky brain? And the reason that we talked about all the stuff we just talked about is tied to that. But just, just what's a leaky brain? And let's talk about the causes and what you can do about a leaky brain. Sure. Well... Now first, let me just paint with the broad strokes, and that is how the human body works is really dependent on segregation of keeping things in certain places where they belong. So we have all kinds of barriers throughout the body. We have at the cellular level, we have the cell membrane that lets certain things in and keeps other things out. Uh, we have the gut lining that allows us to absorb our nutrients and uh, other uh, molecules while excluding things that are potentially dangerous or challenging. And so much research is now focused on the gut lining as it relates to um, our diet, uh, challenges uh, to the gut lining, and how those changes when, for example, the gut lining becomes less effective, how those changes allow the immune system to be challenged, how certain molecules will transgress the gut lining, challenge uh, macrophages and T cells that turns on the production of what are called inflammatory cytokines leading to downstream effects. And we now have uh, be begun to understand that the brain uh, was looked upon as being you know, pretty much a sanctuary, being excluded from all of this activity uh, by virtue of a, a blockade, uh, a moat around the castle, uh, which is called the blood-brain barrier, which was looked upon until really quite recently as uh, being you know, well fortified and really uh, highly able to keep out things that could threaten the brain. Well, we now understand that that is not true. We understand that uh, permeability or leakiness of the blood-brain barrier may in fact be induced by some of the same players that lead to gut permeability. So for those of us that have been studying the leaky gut for the past 20 uh, to 25 years, uh, while uh, you know mainstream is really just beginning to embrace the leaky gut as in the past five years, but nonetheless, uh, people have known about it. But um, we now understand there are a lot of factors that can actually increase the permeability of this uh, blood-brain barrier and allow things to get into the brain that should uh, have been excluded, things that can then lead to um, increased inflammation in the brain, increased production of what are called free radicals, and ultimately initiate a genetic cascade within the brain cell that leads to that cell uh, committing suicide, a process called apoptosis. So we're just beginning to get our arms around it. And interestingly enough, uh, a new report that was published a couple of months ago really focused on the role of what are called the short chain fatty acids. And I'll, let me define that in just a minute. But the role of certain short chain fatty acids in 
either maintaining or not the integrity of the blood-brain barrier. And what research is showing is that one of the three short-chain fatty acids, there are three, uh, acetate, butyrate, uh, and propionate, those are the main three yeah. short-chain fatty acids, but that when uh, butyrate is, is neglected or, or depleted, that the blood-brain barrier suffers and becomes more permeable, letting various things into the brain that should have been excluded. Well, where is this butyrate coming from? Uh, it comes from the gut. And butyrate, and in fact, the short-chain fatty acids, are a major uh, metabolic product of the gut bacteria. So, therefore, the gut bacteria that make the butyrate in the first place, predominantly the lactobacilli, are in fact making a chemical, in this case, in this case a short-chain fatty acid, that is playing a role in the integrity of the blood-brain barrier. So, you talk about a gut-brain connection, think about that, that the gut bacteria are regulating the permeability of the brain. And beyond that, if I may just expound a little bit, because I think this is really cool stuff, yeah. we understand that these short-chain fatty acids uh, do a number of things. They are predominantly butyrate, uh, a, a powerful fuel source uh, for the colonocyte, or the cells that are in the colon. Uh, but beyond that, uh, these short-chain fatty acids are epigenetic factors. You and I talked about that earlier. That short-chain fatty acids uh, change the expression of genes. Very technical, let me say, that they, are, they act as histone deacetylase inhibitors, meaning that they control genes that play a role in cellular survival, in inflammation, and in regulating uh, cell death as well. That process I mentioned earlier called apoptosis. So we're just beginning to understand the wide net that is thrown uh, by these gut bacteria and what are their, uh, their downstream metabolites doing uh, in human physiology. They're making all kinds of chemicals that then spread out throughout the body and influence uh, our health. Um, there are uh, something called RIPs, which are made by the ribosomes of bacteria that modulate our immune system. Uh, there are other um, uh, uh, collections of, of uh, amino acids um, that modulate uh, other aspects of immunity. This is all coming from, from the gut bacteria, and these activities vary depending upon the ratios of the bacteria that lie within us, that, nurture, that, that live within our gut. And again, we, based upon our choices in terms of diet and lifestyle and medications or not, are modulating those bacterial levels and therefore controlling our blood-brain barrier permeability. Who knew? So um, again, uh, you know, this gets back to the data. This gets back to understanding this basic information and then, uh, you know, what do you do with it? How do you analyze the fecal material, the microbiome in terms of its relevance for the permeability of the blood-brain barrier for crying out loud? So. So, uh, we have been very humbled by the fact that all this stuff is going on. We didn't know about it, and it's made us take a step back and say, holy Toledo, uh, we don't know much right now. We, we didn't know about it, but going back you know, 45 years, uh, Dr. Atkins was saying, well, hmm, if you cut carbohydrates, I see these effects. And to get from point A to point B, we had no idea the winding path of causation there. But as clinical practitioners, uh, physicians are at a different place than researchers to say, you know, I can see that this is going to happen and I have no idea why, but it's pretty darn repeatable most of the time. 
and then we start you're right. untangling the why. So given that there's still things we don't know, and we're just discovering this, but that you're a clinical practi- practitioner, what should listeners do today? Like, do they just cut sugar? Do they cut gluten and sugar? Like, give me a couple things that people should do to say, all right, I like my brain. I'd like to not have stuff like LPS leaking into my brain. So what do I do? Well, I'm going to answer that question in a minute because you brought up a couple of points that I can't leave those Go hanging chads. <laughs> I'm in Florida. We have hanging chads. And, <laughs> I love it. You know, the first thing is, is Dr. Atkins. And um, when uh, a lot of times online when I'm criticized, it's like, oh, that's just Dr. Atkins stuff and we know what he died of. Oh, come on. <laughs> so you bash the low carb and reducing sugar and welcoming a fat back to the table because Dr. Atkins may have died of this or that. Um, that doesn't make any that, that, sense. That's not evidence-based. Sorry. No, it's not evidence-based. <laughs> if you want to look at evidence, turn to the uh, 2007 Journal of the American Medical Association in the A to Z trial where they compared the Atkins diet, uh, high fat, low carb, to the Zone diet and to the Ornish diet. Yep. And what they found across the board was that uh, weight loss, uh, changes in body mass index, blood sugar, other metabolic parameters were all improved on the Atkins diet uh, in comparison to the uh, Ornish diet, which is high carb and low fat. And that data has been replicated time and time again. So yeah. the notion of bashing uh, my recommendations and your recommendations because of Dr. Atkins' health issues that uh, the online people are wrong about. Uh, Dr. Atkins <laughs> and his wife, are; she yeah. remains a personal friend. Yeah, she's a good so person. They're wrong, uh, but, but that said, uh, you know, the other thing that I think is interestingly, interesting is that you said, well, he was making these recommendations but may not have fully understand, understood mechanistically what was going on. And that said, I think you're right. Uh, I think it's taken a long time for us to understand how it was and it is that sugar and carbohydrates increase uh, inflammation through the process of glycation, uh, how in, uh, blood sugar and elevations of blood sugar uh, will trigger mechanisms that will both increase body fat and decrease the rate at which we break down uh, body fat, as was so eloquently described by Gary Taubes yes. in his book, Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It, and Good Calories, Bad Calories. So I think that Dr. Adkins, from an observational perspective, made some great observations in his clinic and put them into play, and he was right. God bless him. So there wasn't double-blind stuff to support him. So, for example, we've known recently, and I've lectured about uh, the data that shows a dramatic increased risk of type 2 diabetes and obesity in people who use artificial sweeteners. Uh, yeah. No-calorie artificial sweeteners. We've known that data uh, for a decade. Uh, we've seen the data that the risk of diabetes type 2 is doubled uh, in comparison to people who drink sugar-sweetened beverages. I'm not recommending you drink sugar-sweetened yeah. beverages, but that seems paradoxical. Why would you get diabetes if you drink an artificially sweetened beverages? And, you know, I did my best to explain it. There was some data that indicated that there were changes that took place in the brain in the areas of the hypothalamus that regulate appetite, for example. Uh, and so I've, that was one of my fallback uh, arguments, if you had to have a mechanism. Uh, but more recently, what have Israeli researchers identified? And they've identified that likely this is happening because of the profound changes in the microbiome yeah. that are induced by artificial sweeteners that then cause that microbiome to extract more calories from a given meal 
uh, than it would have had it not been challenged with artificial sweeteners. So we now again get back to the notion that the microbiome is so uh, profoundly involved in a disease like type 2 diabetes, you know, affecting 25 million Americans right now. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, or maybe I didn't, uh, type 2 diabetes is associated with a quadrupling of your risk for Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm for which there is no treatment. So my point is you've got to avoid becoming a type 2 diabetic and drinking diet drinks isn't the way to do that. So uh, it's all about preventive. Is there a study showing that if you don't drink artificial sweeteners, uh, then you won't get type 2 diabetes and therefore you won't get Alzheimer's? <laughs> no, there isn't, but uh, I'm talking about it right now. And so let's get back to now your question. Well, what can you do? And uh, not that this is tops on the list, but I think I've made the case for number, well, not number one, but the first thing on the list, but they're not going to be ranked, would be avoid artificial sweeteners yeah, for that reason. Huge one. I, I think that the antibiotic issue in Western cultures is major league, and maybe that is on the top of the list, I don't know. Um, but understand that the changes happening to the human microbiome with antibiotic exposure may well be permanent and may well explain, as was so wonderfully documented uh, in the book Missing Microbes, uh, may well explain some of the obesity issues that we're seeing in Western cultures, even in children, having to do with antibiotic exposure. I mean, face it, uh, when it was discovered in the 1950s that when you give uh, animals antibiotics, what's the first thing you notice? They get fat. And that is yeah. the underlying reason why 75% of the antibiotics manufactured in America today go into the raising of cattle because it makes them fat and therefore the farmers can make more money and you know, sell fat in cattle. So these changes that happen to make these animals fatter happen because of the changes in their microbiome and likely the same thing is happening in humans. So you've got to be so judicious in your usage of antibiotics not even to mention, I love when people say not to mention, then they mention what they were not going to mention. <laughs> not to mention, and I'll now mention, uh, the fact that our aggressive overusage of antibiotics is paving the way for these antibiotic-resistant superbugs uh, that the World Health Organization has categorized as being one of the top three health risks to the planet in the next decade. I think the third thing is to understand that fat is your friend. Uh, that it's going to take a lot of work to undo the damage that was done to the Western psyche that somehow fat is uh, responsible for all of our ills. That foods labeled low fat and no fat are foods that are to be avoided. That we've got to eat uh, coconut oil, extra virgin olive oil, grass-fed beef, wild fish. We've got to bring fat back to the table. That's how you stay healthy. It's what's kept us alive for two million years, that when you cut fat, you will by default eat more carbohydrate, and that is the devil's plaything. So we were sold this bizarre, wrong bill of goods. Uh, you know, I don't know who you want to blame for this. If you want to blame Ansel Keys, there's plenty of people jumping on that bandwagon. But if you're going to blame Dr. Adkins uh, for popularizing um, a low-carb, high-fat diet and being critical of him, then I think at the same time, we have to have a conversation about Ansel Keys and his work in terms of castigating dietary fat. The next thing I think is you've got to embrace the notion that fiber is the key to health and specifically understand that 
uh, I'm talking about what is called prebiotic fiber. So fiber is great, but a special type of fiber called prebiotic fiber is the type of fiber that nurtures your gut bacteria. We find high levels of prebiotic fiber in foods like Jerusalem artichoke, jicama, which is Mexican yam, uh, dandelion greens, one of my favorite sources, uh, onions, garlic, leek, asparagus, um, uh, lots of foods that you're seeing now that people are talking about that are rich in a specific kind of fiber called a prebiotic fiber. Uh, lunch today, we're, uh, we had radicchio as uh, a really great source of prebiotic fiber. Now, you can buy it at the health food store. These foods are available and you can buy prebiotic fiber in a package. Many companies make that. Add that to your regimen. Fermented foods are hugely important. They've been a part of the human diet as long as we've been eating food off the ground. I mean, as distasteful as it may seem, as food begins to rot, it is undergoing the process of fermentation. Bacteria are multiplying. That's what breaks food down. So we've been eating food off the ground for all, as long as we've been walking the surface of the planet. Now, I'm not suggesting that we eat food off the ground. That's not where we're going with this. But when you go to your health food store and buy kimchi, or you decide to ferment some cabbage yourself at home and make kimchi, or eat cultured yogurt, or sauerkraut, or any number of fermented foods when you're drinking kombucha, for example, you're loading up with good bacteria. Now, this is well beyond uh, taking a good probiotic, and that's another great, solid recommendation. Go to your health food store, buy a wide-spectrum uh, probiotic. Which bacteria should you get? Uh, hard to say, because yeah, that's changing over the year. But in BrainMaker, I chose five prebiotic species that I thought were really tops in terms of the, the science that underlies them. Uh, species like uh, Lactobacillus plantarum, Bifidobacterium longum, and several others. So uh, maybe you'll insert that as a, an information card in what, this podcast. What, what we'll do is we'll have a, a link to BrainMaker because if Good. people are willing to spend a little bit more than an hour listening to our conversation, they really ought to be willing to pick up your book. Because and, there's you know, so much more in your book. There's still two hours to go. Just, <laughs> uh, but, there's but about I five more minutes to go. <laughs> you asked me, what are the keys? And yeah, I, those are the keys. Yeah. But fundamentally, fundamentally, when you look at your plate, it should be uh, covered with uh, color. Uh, colorful, rich, nutrient-dense, mostly vegetables. Uh, but if you're a meat eater, it should be grass-fed beef rich in good omega-3 yep. fat, not grain-fed beef high in omega-6s that are pro-inflammatory, hormone-treated, uh, cattle that have been fed genetically modified food. <laughs> what a notion. Uh, been given grains that have been treated with glyphosate, the active yes. ingredient in Roundup. Which that is, is an result. antibiotic, by the way. Yeah. Yes, it's an antibiotic. It uh, changes the human microbiome. It, it uh, changes our ability to utilize vitamin D. Uh, it leads to uh, you know, significant changes in the way we digest our foods. It alters the ratio of the omega-3s to omega-6s in a non-favorable way. It's a bad player. Uh, it's been estimated that uh, next year, globally, 1.73 metric tons of glyphosate will be used globally. So who knew? That's why, by and large, companies may make um, these genetically modified crops is to make them resistant to this herbicide, glyphosate. Um, so there are a lot of, of players, but I think when you look at that plate, lots of color, mostly vegetables that are fiber-rich, 
add some fermented food, have kimchi a couple times a day, um, lots of fat, pour olive oil, extra virgin organic olive oil on everything, coconut oil, rich in life-sustaining, saturated fat. <laughs> Who knew? Yes, bring it back yeah. to the table, coconut oil. What egg a cool yolks? thing for your brain. What do you think about you know, egg yolks? Egg yolks, that's the best part. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's, you know, that eggs are, are great. In fact, we even should start looking at the egg shell. Yes. Uh, the egg shell is covered in bacteria. It's rich in calcium and other minerals. But the egg yolks, I mean, you still go to a restaurant and look at the menu and it says egg white omelet. What why, the heck? Why would you want an egg white omelet? It's like like juicing and throwing out the fiber. Why do you want to get rid of what may be the most important part of that food? So, um, you know, y your work has, has talked about these things for so long and uh, you're to be praised for that and take the criticism and welcome it. Because when you're criticized, it means that you're challenging the status quo and that's what we do. It's really what we do. Well, th thank you likewise for doing what you're doing. I I've been a fan for, for many years. Even when I first started out, your, your books were already out there. And, and there's, a, there's a question that I've asked everyone on the show, and you may repeat an answer or two, I'm not sure. Okay. If someone came to you tomorrow and said, based on everything you know, your life, not just your practice, um, what are the top three most important things I can do to kick more ass? Like, I want to perform better at everything. I want to be a better human being. What matters most? Top three. Number one, I would say, is to be forgiving. I love it. And I would say that's probably number one, two, and three, and uh, be forgiving of everyone because yep. nobody's perfect. And, um, you know, I, I think that uh, the blame game is, is uh, really what is so responsible for so many of our maladies of, of, of our modern life. And uh, I, I think where you were going, though, would be, uh, per, you know, perhaps more in the lifestyle issues. So I'd no, say, no, it, it's, it's all inclusive. And forgiveness would have been my number one as well, by the way. Yeah, so, well, great. Um, yeah. I'm not surprised to hear you say that. Uh, I think from a, um, a lifestyle uh, perspective, then this may surprise you, uh, but I think the, the first uh, issue would be to ensure that you get aerobic exercise on a daily basis. And I'd put that probably on the top of the list. When we see what are the uh, epigenetic uh, outflow of aerobic exercise looking like, uh, I think that you know, in terms of what would be most helpful for people living in Western cultures, I'd put that really at almost perhaps the top of the list. Uh, number two is a diet like we've talked about, low in carbs, high in fat, and high in fiber. And number three, I think, would be uh, probably to ensure um, well, there's three and four, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Ensure that you get adequate amounts of sleep. Uh, number four would be to really focus on a, having a period of fasting each day. In other words, uh, you know, going 12 hours, uh, having nothing to eat uh, after you've had dinner, delay your breakfast. Um, and I think that uh, prayer and meditation have got to be included mm -hmm. uh, on a number of levels. I mean, if you have to study um, you know, looking at the research of what meditation can do to stress markers, to inflammatory markers, uh, to uh, issues related to biomarkers related to disease resistance. If that's uh, what you need to do, then fine. Uh, from my perspective, I, I look upon that moment of prayer or meditation, whichever you choose to characterize that moment, as a connection uh, with information, call it what you will, spirit, God, love. And I think that's a, a vital part of 
um, of being who we are as humans. So I, I, I'm sorry I couldn't give you three uh, uh, because uh, I didn't. I you, didn't want to leave any of those things off the you've, list. You've earned, so. you've earned the extra two, Dr. Perlmutter. Okay. So. <laughs> thank you, Dave. Thank you for, for being on Bulletproof Radio. It was an honor to have you on, and what a fun conversation. Hope to have you on again, maybe when your next book comes out. Well, thank you, Dave, and uh, I appreciate all the work you do as well. If you like today's show, you know what to do. Go out there and pick up a copy of BrainMaker and check out Dr. Perlmutter's work. If you care about your brain, if you'd like more information about why you should avoid gluten uh, the way we both recommend, uh, his, his book is very, very good about that as well. So uh, definitely, this is a guy, if you don't already know his work, you should know about it if you care about biohacking and you care about controlling your biology. Thanks for listening. If you like this, leave us a good review, but make sure you pick up Dr. Perlmutter's work. Have an awesome day. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.